If you'll join with me, today's scripture reading is from Mark 2, 1 through 5. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they lay down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. I love that text. I love that story. It's one of those um, really brief stories. It's five verses. There's like layer upon layer upon layer of good stuff in this story. In the second chapter of Mark. These four able-bodied friends and then their what Mark calls a paralytic friend. And the, the fact that like the, the, in some ways, like the main character in this particular story is this man who doesn't have the use of his arms or his legs. And even though he's the main character, he doesn't have any lines, like you don't hear from him at all. Uh, which I like as a feature of the story because maybe you've been there, but life can feel that way a little bit at times where you are, you know, hoping to or wishing you were the main character in your, li- your own life, but you don't seem to have a whole lot of say about how it's going. I love that there are these four friends who hatch a plan to get their paralyzed friend across town to where Jesus is, which means that they would have heard some rumor of some kind that Jesus does these miraculous works of healing. That that's, that's the plan. That they love him, they care about him, and they've heard these rumors that this person Jesus does miracles. So they, they throw their friend on a mat and they carry him across town to where Jesus is teaching. And I love that when they get there, it's so crowded they can't get in. I love that detail. Um, I also love that when I read the story, it strikes me that if that was for guys like me, <laughs> that's the end of the story. <laughs> like, it's like, we, like God to the door, it's hella crowded. Well, it's the thought that counts. Like that's it. It's over. It's like the shortest story. And it's like, and lo, they walked away sadly. Chapter three. Like it's over. <laughs> But apparently, they have, among these four friends, they have a crazy friend. If you have a crazy friend in your life, thank your lucky stars. Uh, Because the crazy friend is the friend that takes the plan a little further, like just that extra step towards illegality. Um, the crazy friend is a friend who, like, on Thanksgiving is like, yes, we could go out and play football. What if we did it with the Cornish game hen? Like, the crazy friend is a friend that always... So there, if it's, it's not four guys just like me. There's at least one person who gets, <laughs> gets to this part where the story should end and goes, oh, I, I got an idea. And the next thing you know, these four guys are on, four people are on the roof with their paralyzed, which I don't know how you get a paralyzed man on a rooftop in the first century. 
But I can tell you it takes a crazy friend. So now they're on the roof uh, and they're trying to figure out that if that's the front entrance, then maybe Jesus is teaching somewhere around here, which is when phase two of crazy friends plan goes into effect and they start to cut a hole in this dude's roof. And we hear these stories, like we read the Bible, and maybe we hear the stories like, I don't want to say too much, but enough that we don't <laughs> quite capture like the ridiculousness of some of these things. But like this morning, if I'm talking, right? Because this is the situation. There are people in a room. Jesus is there. I'm assuming he's talking. If I'm up here, I'm, I'm talking this morning. And as I'm talking, we hear the sound of a good number of footsteps <laughs> on the roof just walking around, and what sounds like, you know, a body being dragged around. And as we're attending to this really strange sound over our heads, <laughs> debris begins to fall from the roof onto the floor in front of the stage. As we look up through the debris, there's four heads like this. If that was to happen, right, let's try it. Let's like put pause on just like, we're just reading the Bible. Let's, no, hold on a second. Like, if that was to happen right now, Here's the thing that no one does. No one in this room, nobody, no one in this room looks up through the hole and goes, oh, what faith they must have. No, you don't. No one says that. That's not how you just get out the roof. Like that, you're just like, because it looks like lunacy. Somebody say amen. It really does look bananas. Like to live into the, some of the things that it takes to actually follow Jesus, to be one of these Christian type folks, to like trust in the miraculous, to believe that there is a loving presence at the center of all things that holds all things together, that Jesus rose from the dead, lives to reconcile us to the Father, that at the end of all things, all things would be made not just right, but better. I mean, these things are bonkers. Look around at the world. It should feel, and maybe sometimes it should look a little bit like lunacy to believe and to live the way we are called to believe and to live. And we are being made into those kinds of people. Can I get an amen? You're being made into the kind of person who lives a little bonkers. So that's a side note. That's the part of the story, by the way, that when I think about it, like, that's the point of story which you figure out there's at least, at least one woman, at least one woman involved with this team of four, at least. Because I can see four dudes, like, putting their friend on a mat and carrying him across town. I can definitely see four dudes, like, getting up on a roof and just cutting a hole in something. Like, that makes sense to me. But I think that's the point where it's like male ingenuity runs out. Because we wouldn't have thought about the distance from the roof to the floor. You'd be like, oh. Well, well, we came to get you healed, so, you know. But at least there's, there's got to be like one woman involved who's maybe a little bit like my mom. And this is all projection, I know. It's, it's got to be a little bit more like my mom. My mom, uh, beautiful, like passionate, Mexican, brilliant woman, has that purse with everything freaking imaginable in it. Like, why do you have some of the things you have? Crescent wrench. Why? Why do you have a crescent? But it, 
And here's this woman who's like on the roof. Goes, you know, strangely enough, I carry around 400 feet of twine all the time. And today, how useful. And so now they're lowering their friend instead of dropping him to the feet of Jesus. And at the point at which this person is set down in front of the feet of Jesus, this is the point of the story that for me is actually the most radical part. It's not just the part like we know this is coming, that he's going to be healed. We know that's going to come. It's a little bit nuts. Yes, they get him up on the roof. But like the most radical part of the story is this. It's when they set him down at the feet of Jesus. And this is the witness in Mark. What Mark says is that Jesus didn't look down at the man and speak to the man directly. Not initially. He didn't look at his physical condition. He said nothing about the nature of his faith. No, this is what Mark says. Mark says that he looked up through the hole. Watch me now. And he saw their faith. And in response to their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat and walk. Watch that. You've been there. Somebody say amen. You've been there when you did not have faith and strength for the moment you were in and someone else's faith, someone else's strength picked you up and carried you through and into that moment. Because we don't become who we're becoming on our own. We simply can't. This hyper-individualized thing we've lived into as Americans where like your faith is your faith, yeah, that's not the gospel, y'all. That's not how we were designed. Last week I talked about this um, problem I have with the phrase it is what it is, that I think it is what you make of it. And it came from this moment where I got in trouble in a speech class in high school with a teacher uh, who called me up in front of the class, literally handed me one of these, a plastic cactus, and sat, sat it down in front of here and, and said, well, if you'd like to talk so much, then go ahead and entertain us with the cactus. Gave me five minutes to... And someone said, hey, you know, just pretend like you're in the desert. It's just a cactus. And what, the teacher then said, no, it's not just a cactus. It is what you make of it. I've let that seed of it is what you make of it, like, grow into things deep in me ever since then. And I recognize that part of what it looks like for me to live as someone who is in relationship with God is that there really is nothing in the world that simply is what it is. Somebody say amen. Whether we're talking about systems of oppression, we're talking about church, we're talking about relationships, there is power and will at the center of all of these things. And what I get to choose to do is recognize my own power, my own will, and that I'm being formed. And what's going on in my life is I get to choose how things are going. It's part of why I'm sent. Well, part of what's actually happening in all of this, I am being made into something. I'm being made into someone, and that part is God's part. God's part is that, like, I am not simply as I am. Somebody say amen. Only God is that way. I am that I am. That's it. Everything else is a matter of transformation, will, time, change. I'm in process. As I enter into these moments, these seasons in which, like, I give myself over to the drama happening in my neighborhood, where I don't say it simply is what it is, but I get involved. When I actually remain, well, I'm going to say it out loud, when I, say, when I remain involved in national, state, and, uh, and local politics, instead of just saying it is what it is, like, I enter into a process in which I am formed, and that's really the thing God is up to. Somebody say amen? I'm being transformed to be the kind of person 
who can follow Christ in the world, bear witness to goodness, love well like Jesus. I don't get to do that on my own. That's not an individual process. The primary tool God uses to form us is other people. It's not sermons. I'm glad I'm here this morning. I love doing this, but I recognize this as like, I'm like, I'm barely a human being when I'm up here because I'm the person with a microphone and all that kind of stuff. Like the primary tool God is using to form you into his likeness, God's likeness, is the people around you. We don't get anywhere without one another. We simply don't. Um, and this text highlights that in this really, really powerful way. This man was healed because his friends loved him well. He didn't have this personal, individual encounter with Christ in which he got healed. His friends got him where he needed to be on their little strength and literal faith. And in response to their strength and their faith, his life was changed. That's going to be true for you on both sides of that coin. It has been true for you on both sides of that coin. You've been carried and you have carried others. Somebody say amen. My daughter, I have a four-year-old and a, uh, an 11-year-old. And uh, my four-year-old, her name is Caitlin. We call her the bird. I don't remember how that started. The bird, um, she likes my phone. Like she wants to handle my phone and she asks for it all the time. She's kind of obsessed with it. I'm sure that'll wear off by the time she's a teenager. Um, <laughs> But what she doesn't say, well, this is like, this is like a year, so she's, where, she's more articulate now because she's four, but like what she, when she started like two and a half, three, she wouldn't say, can I have your phone? She would say, see Caitlin? Her name is Caitlin. See Caitlin? See Caitlin? Because what she wants to do is she wants to look at her picture on my phone. So she would, I would unlock the phone because I wouldn't let her know the code. At some point she figured it out. I don't, that was terrifying. Um, and then she would like deftly navigate to the pictures app. She would hit it and then she would start thumbing through pictures to find pictures of herself. And she would stop and then she would turn around. She would show me the foot. She goes, see, Caitlin, it's adorable. Now, as she's flipping through, I would notice on occasion that she would flip right by pictures that she was in, but that she wasn't featured. See what I'm saying? Like if it was her, and I got, I'll show you. I got plenty of pictures of the bird. Like she's adorable. She's funny. I got pictures, videos, and it's just her. But then there are like these other pictures and like she's in context in other people's lives. Like she's like being held by someone or she's in the background. And I, like, I know she's in the picture. And so I like, I would reach and I'd be like, oh, oh, bird, you missed something. And she, and she wouldn't let me have it back. Like it would be like the wrestling match. To get a cell phone back from like a three-year-old is like wrestling an alligator, like covered in grease, who has your cell phone. Um, so they would get the phone back. She would not want to relinquish the control, but if she really wanted to see herself, you see where I'm going with this already, if she really wanted to see herself, she had to let go of control and let someone else show her where she was. She had to hand me the phone so I could say, hold on, slow down. Do you see yourself here? That's your Uncle D. Uncle D is holding you in this picture. That's you, bird. Oh, that's you when you were a baby. And so it is with you and I. It takes other people and it takes us relinquishing power and control to a community of people 
so that other folks' vision of us in context could help us see ourselves. We're too narcissistic as a culture. We're too busy in our minds to see ourselves well and clearly. We need the vision and the care of others in order to see ourselves in context. And let me say this last thing before I say some other things. You really want to see yourself in the world? That's a matter of context. I don't actually buy individualism. Really as an idea, philosophically, I don't think there's any such thing. You're not simply who you are, period, in existence. You are who you are in relationship, first and foremost to the one who made you, and then to all of those to whom you belong and with whom you live. There's literally no such thing as individuality. I just don't buy it. I think it's a lie. I think it's a lie that keeps us from recognizing the essential nature of relationship. So I mentioned last week when I was here that like I've been around Regen for 20 plus years that when the guy who started this church, I was a friend of his before, he was working at a record label that I was on. Um, and I'm gonna tell you that story in a little bit that like I, I came through the doorway of like I was, I was playing music and I knew a guy who was on the record label who then started this church. Um, and getting to that point where like I, I was, well, I guess I will ju- I'll just jump right to that story. Um, my plan in life was not to do this. Like I wasn't planning on like teaching and storytelling. And my plan wasn't even to play like music, which I did for a really long time professionally. My plan was to teach. Um, like well, I was going to be a youth minister. I was on Young Life staff. Do you guys know Young Life? Anyone know Young Life? Young Life, yeah, yeah, it's like youth ministry for kids that don't want to go to church. And uh, I, was, I, was, I was on Young Life staff, and I was raking it in, just killing it. I was making like $600, $650 a month, uh, just murdering. And uh, in order to supplement my exhaustive uh, youth ministry income, I started to teach, because <laughs> the real money's not in youth men. It's got to be in public education. Um, <laughs> My parents are like, we're trying to get you out of the poverty cycle that we've been in for so long. I'm like, I know, but... And I was playing music like just to kind of process my life because I went from being like just a kid who was like a kid to being this 18, 19-year-old person who had a relationship with the God of the universe. And that was a lot to deal with. And so I was like just playing music to play music. And I was living with four other single guys in this guy Frank's house. Frank ran the record label that Todd worked at. Todd was a guy who was the initial founding pastor of this church. So I'm living at Frank's house. And I'm living at Frank's house because he invited us to live in this house. Now, Frank, when he invited us in, he thought, and here's how plans go. Remember I said last week, plans fall apart, all of them. Frank's plan, he and his wife were pregnant. She was pregnant. It's his responsibility. That's different. She was pregnant. Men don't get pregnant. Um, she was pregnant. It was his responsibility. They, they were going to move out, and then we were all going to move in, and then the timing got messed up, and then four single stupid guys moved into this household with Frank and his very pregnant wife. The hijinks, friends. Um, and I could not tell if Frank liked me. Frank ran a record label. He was this kind of cool cat. I couldn't tell if Frank liked me, and I continued to do things that really reinforced him not liking me. Uh, at one point, I sold furniture from his household without his permission. A guy showed up at the door, and he said, I'm here for the armoire. And I said, the what? Is that a French word? He said, armoire. I just liked the word. I said, armoire. Uh, and so what, what is an armoire? And he, said, he points to the entertainment system. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. So I walk in with this complete stranger, and I dismantle all of Frank's tech 
and then I like help unload the armoire and put it in this guy's truck. He just hands me some cash and drives off. And Frank came home later that night and I was like, I handed him the money. He goes, what's this for? I said, I sold the armoire. And it's telling him, it's a French word. It means entertainment system. That's not true at all. And Frank's like, what guy? I said, the guy from Craigslist. He came here to buy the armoire. He says, there was no Craigslist ad. You sold my stuff. So these are the things that were happening. Frank came to me at one point. I, I played this like little, just like two or three song set at actually a cafe called Mocha Lisa. You and I were just talking about this like 15, 20 minutes ago. And he came to me like later that night. He goes, you ever thought about playing music for a living? And I was like, what? Like this guy runs a record label. I said, uh, not really. He goes, yeah, you should, you know, we should talk about that. I said, dude, you, you think the songs are that good? He goes, no, the songs aren't very good, but I like you. I was like, thank you. Um, fast forward like six, seven months. Um, my, like most of my young life kids have graduated and it's a, it's a good time for me to try something new. So I'm in the studio making a record and Frank flies me out to this thing in Nashville, Tennessee, where like record labels highlight the artists they're going to be like checking out that year or like pushing that year. And the way, it normally, <laughs> the way it normally works is like the record label executive would like walk up to the stage and say, I'm, you know, Tony Soprano or whatever, and I run this record label. And this artist you're about to see is going to rearrange rock and roll. It, the, the, nothing will ever be the same. She's like a mixture of like Tom Petty, the Beatles, Aretha Franklin. And uh, like this song, it was downloaded directly from the heavens. Like this, like, and, and then they would hand out like literally like hundreds and hundreds of dollars of like free stuff to the room. And then the artist would walk out and they'd play a song. People like, ah! <laughs> and Frank did something different. Frank walked up to the microphone and he said, um, my name is Frank Tate. I'm with Five Minute Walk Records, and um, I, uh, I don't bring you any free stuff because we don't feel like we should have to bribe you to pay attention to us. <laughs> Just like that's his opening line. And then he goes, behind me is Justin McRoberts, and he's the artist we'll be focusing on this year. And I'll be honest, he's not very good. I'm standing behind him, holding a guitar. He said, I'll be honest, he's not very good. And they said this. But I'd be willing to bet that most of the artists you see this morning won't be around two or three years from now because this is hard to do. I think Justin will be around 15, 20 years from now. And I think the work he'll be doing then is going to be really good. So I'm making a long-term investment. So if you want to make it with me, great. If you don't, I don't care. And then he walked off. I was like, hi. <laughs> Justin, this song sucks. Okay. Uh. Now here's what happened. That first record came out and it did pretty well. But I didn't get hung up on the early success because there was this person in my life who was thinking about who I was becoming and he was thinking about who I was going to be 15, 20 years down the line. You know how capable I was of that in my early 20s? Not. I was simply not capable of seeing myself in context. Frank was, and Frank did. He said, this is who you're going to be long-term. I see this in you. And there were just things about me, and it wasn't my talent, y'all. It wasn't like, and, this is what he, and he meant what he said. Watch this. He meant what he said. It wasn't like he thought that I was just a brilliant artist. He looked at me and he said, I like you as a person, and I want to try to figure out how to get the best of you into the lives of other people. I didn't have vision like that for myself. 
I just didn't. You know that most of us don't? Somebody say amen. We just don't as individuals. Because most of what we hear from the world around us, sorry, including a lot of the religious world around us, is that you're not okay. And that you're not enough. And you don't have much to offer. And you should just sit and watch and let the special people do good stuff. That's most of what we get from the world around us. And it takes the love of Christ manifest and living in another human heart to look you square in the face and say, that's a bunch of trash. First and foremost, you are a son and a daughter of the living God. You are beloved. Secondly, there are capacities and strengths in you that you've just not tapped into. And this isn't one of those like, go take a 10-week course on self-actualization pitches. I don't buy those either. What I buy is that you're the thing that God has sent into the world, into your neighborhood, into your relationships. And there is a courage it takes for us to believe that we're the answer to a lot of the questions the folks around us are asking. And that courage simply doesn't get like grown up in my hyper-individualized, isolated soul. It has to be fed to me by the love of people around me. That's just period it. There is no other way. So, these four friends, this story, imagine being one of the disciples, one of the early apostles, and how important it was to see this story play out because there would be a moment, there would be many moments after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, as they would not have the person of Jesus right there with them when the paralyzed men, when like the isolated and beaten women showed up and when it was on them, when it was just this tiny little community of women and men in the dark shadow of oppressive Rome looking and saying like, we're the thing God has done. And what they would remember is that there were these four nameless folks who carried a paralyzed man to a household and then went the extra mile and dug a hole and they put everything they could into it because what they knew when they did so is that he doesn't get where he's going if we don't do that. And on the basis of their strength and their faith, Jesus responded to them and made great, true, and beautiful things happen. They had to believe that that could be them too. And there wasn't going to be another way for the folks who've been kicked out and stepped on by the systems around them to get where they were going. No, it was going to be on the early church. It was going to be on the apostles. It was going to be on the disciples. It was going to be on folks who would say to women, just like Jesus did, you are worth more than you can possibly imagine. I'm so sorry you live in a society that treats you the way you get treated. And they had to say it over and over and over again so that eventually over the course of time there would be powerful women who funded the ministries of men like Paul. Paul doesn't get to write all these letters and travel to all these churches without Lydia. And Lydia doesn't get to be who she is. If someone doesn't say to Lydia, you are a daughter of the king, and say it over and over and over again until she believed it. We don't get where we're going 
We don't become who we're becoming without one another. Your neighbor doesn't become who they're becoming without your love. Your sisters, your brothers. We don't become who we're becoming without one another. There is nothing in the world that simply is what it is. It is what we make of it. And we are what we make of one another. Amen? We're going to go to a time of communion. This was an opportunity and a, a witness and a symbol that Jesus passed on. And he entered into this tradition, this practice that they would have, you know, known already of sharing this meal together. And what he said was, he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. If you don't have communion elements, by the way, they're, they can come around right here. You just raise your hand and we can get them to you. What he said is that he took the bread and he sat at the table with the people that he'd be passing his ministry on to. And he said, this is my body broken for you. It's not what he said. What he, he did not say, this is my body and it's broken, period. He said, it's broken for you. And he spoke this to them so that they would recognize their worth and relationship to him. They would recognize their connection. They would know who they were. He said, when you eat this, eat this in remembrance of me. Then he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And symbolizing that he would have his blood spilt because there would be a sacrifice necessary. Just like there is a sacrifice necessary for you and I most days in some way, shape, or form. And some of the things I'm really ready to put down, some of the things you and I really, like our individualism is one of the things we just have to keep dying to over and over and over and over again so that we might trust the voices and the love of those around us. He said, so when you drink of this, drink of this uh, and remember me.